Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to subscribe and download. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Narrative Live. It's nice to have you with us tonight on another special edition of Epstein Untold. Um, we're going to talk a lot about Robert Maxwell's life today. As you know, his life could have filled many novels, in fact, has filled many novels. But the story of a Czech refugee who climbs to the pinnacle of British society as the publisher of The Mirror is unlikely a tale as it sounds. The fact that he was also a super spy, an arms trader, whose side hustle was negotiating the collapse of the Soviet Union seems even more unlikely. But even that isn't quite the whole story. As we'll reveal today, there's much more connecting Robert Maxwell to Jeffrey Epstein and to Jelaine Maxwell than meets the eye. You can't really understand Maxwell's story without understanding the Jeffrey Epstein story and vice versa. In fact, you could argue that the Jeffrey Epstein saga is in actuality the second part of the Robert Maxwell story. I'm joined by our fantastic panel, uh, Greg Oliar, I think I said it correctly, uh, of Prevail and other great uh, uh, writing ent enterprises, including many best-selling novels. And Lincoln Bible is here, and Eric Garland is here. Hello to both of you again. Welcome back to Narrative Live. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the news of the day. We, we have a whole show planned, but we should touch a little bit about revelations today that it seems that Ahud Barak, who's been previously linked to, uh, to Jeffrey Epstein, is now being named in one of the lawsuits for sexually abusing uh, Virginia Giffrey, who's the original or one of the original uh, victims in the Epstein saga. None of this is truly surprising, although it is unusual to see a, uh, a former Israeli prime minister named in a suit like that. Not just former prime minister, but also former uh, equivalent of the Secretary of Defense, their Minister of Defense Forces, and uh, head of military intelligence. So, right. yes, as we, weird. As we, as we found out, you know, when I went to speak to Ari ben Menashe um, over a year ago, Ehud uh, Barak was part of the blackmailing scheme. He was the guy who was picking up all the dirty tapes and putting them somewhere else, you know, returning them to whoever wanted them, I guess. They, they had their... Uh, their blackmail drop-off center. It's uh, it's clear it's clear that he was part of the operation. He was actually a key element of that. Now, on top of that, he's potentially an abuser of one of these uh, young women. That's a ph phenomenal thing to happen. Again, for a former Israeli prime minister, uh, the way we found out is through Alan Dershowitz. Well, Dershowitz has been, uh, you know, we all follow a great court reporter. Uh, named Adam Classfield, and he was in there. Dershowitz has been trying to get his hands on some um, depositions, I guess. But what was happening in the court was just, you know, is this guy going to have the right to uh, Dershowitz? Uh, can he? He wanted to be able to quote unquote defend himself against these allegations, and so therefore I need to see this stuff. Well, if he's not really if, if there's other people involved in this and not him, I, I, I'm very curious why Alan Dershowitz really wants to get his hands on this information and what he plans on doing with it. And if it turns out that Ehud Barak is actually in there, um, you know, that might be that might be a reason. Right. 
It's, it's, it's very unclear because he also is the one that helped shut this all down on Jeffrey's behalf. And he's the one who crafted the whole um, co-conspirator. You can't go after any co-conspirators agreements with then Acosta. Um, you know, Dershowitz has been in, deeply involved in this thing in very weird, non-lawyerly, <laughs> non-professional, like not the way that lawyers behave ways, right? Hiring Black Cube, all of this stuff that's uh, to go follow the witnesses and the girls and the victims, uh, calling the the victims prostitute, teenage prostitutes where, you know, technically you, you can't, you're not a prostitute if you're underage, that's rape. So he's the one who crafted all of that bullshit around that. And he, for some reason, is feels entitled to get his hands on information that the court never saw fit. And Ghislaine Maxwell is the one that was fighting that, her attorney fighting. Oh, that's right. right having right, right. any of this get turned over. It's really um, interesting that they're also victimizing Virginia Giffrey again, who, you know, she doesn't want this information out necessarily in the way it's being handed out. And yet here she is a second time, uh, you know, finding her, her name uh, in the headlines in a way that she may not want to be associated right now. So it's, it's kind of bizarre that this has gone public. I mean, I, I sure understand why Alan Dershowitz gets to see the stuff to prepare his defense, but it doesn't make sense that it's been released publicly. I want to follow on what Lincoln's Bible is talking mm -hmm. about with what I call non-economic behavior in the intelligence field, which is mm -hmm. anybody who's not acting in accordance with their own normal interests, like, or also the Avenatti rule, like why is this guy on television tainting all these jury pools yeah. if he's really representing a client as opposed to sitting in the background and filing you know, appropriate things, which is what most attorneys do. They don't go and take 128 different television uh, spots. Dershowitz is absolutely not acting like an attorney, much like Ehud Barak, you know, when you, when you put it the way uh, we've seen in some of the photos where he's sneaking in the side door to come out with uh, an armload of sex tapes. It's really, if you've been head of an intelligence agency, it's not to say that you've never done a gig as an operative before, but generally you don't, as former Secretary of Defense, Minister of Defense, head of an intel thing, you don't go pick up the bag of compromising tapes yourself. <laughs> Generally not. With all the cameras pointing at you. I mean, no. it just seems like, and the Israelis are really good at this stuff, right? So yeah. don't they yeah, hire somebody? It it's one of those you can't have it both ways moments. Be you famous. can't be really, really good at this and then clowning yeah. around with a scarf of smuts on your head and covering your face. I'm former Minister of Defense for Israel, but it's okay. I'll sneak in the side door. They'll never find me. I, that doesn't seem credible to me. <laughs> he once took down an entire PLO's cell, I think, dressed in drag. Um, so this is yeah, definitely a, a come do down yeah. operationally from what it's he previously done. I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong. <laughs> he definitely is done it's, not thing. it's not his finest moments, that's for sure. Not his finest fashion moment. <laughs> All right. So that's the other one big news today. We've got lots to talk about in terms of Jeffrey Berman and what's happening at the SDNY. We're going to do that in the next hour because what I'd like to do is focus a little bit on Robert Maxwell. And in order to do that, I need to, you know, I was going to play lots of good 80s music, but apparently I can't because I'll be charged for playing all the good 80s music. The bad 80s music is still available, but it didn't quite make sense. So uh, we're going to go back to the 1980s in a different way. This was the year, 1984, when, believe it or not, the Macintosh came out. And it came out with an ad that was pretty relevant to what we're talking about today. One calls. Our hands don't talk themselves to death, but we are 
January 24th, Apple Computer will introduce Macintosh. And you'll see why 1984 won't be like 1984. So, of course, 1984 was like 1984. It turns out to be the beginning of the entire surveillance, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, era that we're in right now, where every little bit of data is tracked on you and everything is marketed to you in a specific way. Your entire life seems to be in the hands of a Facebook, Google, or anybody else. And it's kind of smart of Apple to be sitting there and saying, hey, it's not really 1984 when, in fact, they are introducing the very thing Orwell um, spoke about. And the reason why it's important to this story is because it relates to this thing called Promise, which I know you guys know about, which was a software uh, created in the Department of Justice initially to track criminals going through the court system. Promise made it possible for prosecutors to track any case through the U.S. court systems. The underlying code was truly pioneering. Promise allowed data from different databases to be combined into a single data set for analysis. At the time, there was just simply nothing like it for tracking people, money, and cargo. So decades before Edward Snowden revealed the NSA was spying on basically everybody, American intelligence already had the software to do it. Ronald Reagan believed Promise was his secret weapon to bring down the Soviet Union. But how do you get Promise into the hands of the Russians? Well, in 1983, or so the story goes, Rafi Eitan, an Israeli spymaster operating under a pseudonym, stole a copy of Promise from its creator, Bill Hamilton of Inslaw. Eitan gave the software to Ari ben Menashe, his partner in the spying, also from Israeli military intelligence, and then he gave it to Robert Maxwell, the British media tycoon and double KGB and Israeli agent, who gave it to the Russians. Hamilton and Ben Menashe blew the lid off the spy caper on Australian TV. He allowed the CIA to spy on the intelligence agencies that bought it. So many people in the last 10 years, due to cover-ups, died mysteriously. Modifications that enabled it to key in a special access code and gain entry to all the information on the computer. It would be equivalent to reading the handwritten files of all the agents, except the computer has them neatly organized and typed and instantly indexed, so it's much more convenient. What a tool, what a tool that they gave the you know, the NSA developed it, we believe, for themselves, and they then sold it to the Russians with an attempt to spy on the Russians. The Russians figured out how to reverse engineer it, and they in turn spied back on the Americans, and the same thing happened with the Chinese. And the guy who was handling, handling all of this, for some reason, was, was the publisher of the Daily Mirror, because that's what one would do, right? You'd go to the publisher of the Daily Mirror to sell spy software. Um, and, and, you know, it's 1984. It's like it's the tipping point of all of all our data nightmares, and Maxwell is the guy running the ship. Anyone want to pick up on that one? Just real real quick, yeah. PROMISE, I found out, uh, prepping for this, is an acronym, and it stands for Prosecutors Management Information Systems, yeah. which I did not know, even though we've talked about this a lot. Um, and I think that, that harkens back to its original purpose, which was the, the sort of Department of Justice database. Yeah, it was right. intended for that. I don't know. Well, that's what they claimed it was. That was its cover story. Yeah. That was its well, import export Well, but it was still shop. doing that. That's, it. that's incredible, right? So, uh, you know, when you consider that it, what goes through the Department of Justice, that you have counterintelligence investigations, you have uh, criminal organized crime investigations, you have all of our fucketeers in there, right? Right. One way or another, if they're breaking laws, 
uh, and that goes through Bank of New York, the banks in New York or our banking system or involves individuals in, in, uh, in U.S. soil. Um, that's a, I would like to have that if I'm a fucketeer overseas and I want to see what might be the tracking going on. What about witness protection? Oh my gosh, maybe I want that if I'm a mobster. So, you, you know, it's a hell of a thing to have your eyes into it's if you're a criminal it's it's you know or a spy that's like it's candy oh my there's God. another use here that um reminds me of uh robert hansen the trader who's at uh, adx florence uh yeah. you can also see with that kind of software who's looking into what when and what nailed hansen i come to understand was he was looking his own name up in the FBI counterintelligence <laughs> database a little too often for someone <laughs> who was not concerned about being picked up as a KGB right. spy. It's like Robert Hansen, Robert, Robert Hansen. Robert right. Hansen, Robert Hansen. And, and then they're like, well, Bob, what's up, Bob? <laughs> and that put him on the trail. And so Promise would do that. If you have dirty prosecutors, which they've had for years, of course, that's why we have the Rule 48A that you can't get rid of Flynn's prosecution with just a dirty bill bar. That's why they have that, because you pay off prosecutors and attorneys general and all that. It happens. And this would let you know who's poking into cases that they're not mm. supposed to be. Yeah. So if you're got dirty prosecutors and mobsters and spies, you can find your rats in there. So this is now the hall of mirrors. Everybody just spying on everybody for spying. It really was, it really crime. was. It was this kind of thing where suddenly everybody was spying on everybody else and everyone had, suddenly the entire planet is covered with the data information surveillance tool. Uh, it was done by uh, Senator John Towers was the guy, or Tower, I should say. He was a Senator from Texas who was going to be the defense secretary later in his life for all the good work he had done in being sort of the KGB and Israeli spy handler in the United States. And it was he who uh, approached Maxwell first to, to start brokering the Promise software around the world. I don't know if you remember that this thing called Berlitz schools in the 1980s where you could go learn different languages I, we had it in South Africa. I'm sure it doesn't mm -hmm. didn't exist as much in the United States, but it's basically an intelligence front to some extent. And what Maxwell did is absolutely used, an intelligence yeah, front. <laughs> he, used, he used it as a way to market uh, this promise software around the world, pocketing you know a good commission from each one. Um, and ultimately, it was uh, Robert Gates who was in charge of that whole project. He's still very powerful today and has been in many cabinets. And, uh, and Rafi Eitan, the guy we saw just a little earlier on, that convinced Maxwell this was the thing to do. That's unusual for a, for a publisher of a, of, a, of a newspaper. So clearly this guy is more than, the, than that. He's a, he's a spy, obviously, uh, as we've discovered many times. Uh, but this is a really unusual set of circumstances. Look, this was terrible. <laughs> mm. uh, and he was also, um, it's hard to nail the date when Robert Maxwell uh, started doing um, his business entities and partnerships with Mogilevich, um, Semyon Mogilevich, who was a, is a was a big uh, uh, Ukrainian um, Soviet-born, Soviet-era, uh, still alive, but not what he was in his heyday in the '90s, really rising up um, with the fall of the Soviet Union to consolidate all the different. Ratfas. I mean, there were several mafias, uh, families going on in the Soviet Union. He just happened to be head of the biggest one, Solnitskaya, which was called the Rising Sun sometimes. 
and um, or the brain inside of it. And he was a massive money launderer, um, a brilliant guy. And uh, before kind of ascending to that um, hierarchy within the underworld, uh, while still being a gangster, he was partnered with Robert Maxwell. Um, and introduced, I think, by a Soviet military intelligence uh, head of counterintel. But anyway, so Maxwell's running around with with that guy too, and you know we do know that he got his hands on Promise as well. So probably from Maxwell. This is Semyon Mogilevich. This is Semyon Mogilevich, right? Yeah. Do we and know? Maxwell, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Do, do we know when Maxwell um, acquired control of the Bulgarian Cooperative Bank? That, that would be the year. This is in, in the 80, in the Craig 80, Unger 89. book. Eighty-nine, right? I believe it was eighty-eight, eighty-nine. Yeah. I'd have to look at it's the, the book. It's the loan reference to Robert Maxwell in the Craig Unger book. Right, Talking the late eighties in the Unger in the Unger's puts uh, Maxwell running this Bulgarian, you know, like two billion dollars of flight capital. He was able to push through that uh, Bulgarian bank. Uh, also. Um, at the sort of direction and request of Khrushchev, the head of the counterintelligence at the KGB. Hmm. Um, or counter, that sounds stupid. Uh, like the guy at the KGB who was responsible for making the spies everywhere. So yeah. spies that we have, you know, and spies elsewhere, that, that was his directorate, that he was hmm. head of that. And he was Robert Maxwell's really good buddy. I mean, they, they, they sent gifts to each other. They like kissed each other on the cheek when they met each other. This was his. He had a lot of friends in, in the KGB. He had a lot of friends in he, the KGB. Like, for a guy who just came from Czechoslovakia, you know, he, right. he, he had quite a lot of friends in different places in KGB. You know, he was born, so this is the official storyline. He said he was born Ludwig Koch uh, in Czechoslovakia. And then this is what Britannica says about him. He's one of the richest men in Great Britain and the head of a powerful publishing empire. It leaves out all these sort of essential details that you'd want to add in there, like the fact that he um, you know, stole $800 million from the CIA, 450 million pounds from pensioners. He's six aliases, six aliases. Can you believe that? And he's worked on three intelligence agencies because he worked for the KGB, uh, the Israeli military intelligence, and also MI6. And, and MI9, actually, in 14. But let's say those three are just all the same ones. So he, what we know about Robert Maxwell is actually vastly incorrect. There's also the fact that we don't know his real name. Now, I know, Eric, you know a lot about the region he was born in, which is the Carpathian Mountains uh, in the eastern part of Slav Slovenia, I think. Uh, it's in Ukraine. No, it's in Ukraine now. It was Slovakia. It's now in Ukraine. It's like the hot potato of the eastern of Eastern Europe. Everyone gets a chance to own it for a little bit. Okay, so uh, LB likes it when I do this. He's a spy. The story's complete <laughs> hokum. I did I did the background research. Like, oh, this guy's Czech. His name's Jan. But now he's going to take Robert. And then you look through the article in Russian. Uh, not that I speak it at all. But you look at it and it's, his name's uh, Michael. Uh, so he's like a Michael. But they loved his accent. I'm like, in what language did they like his accent? Because is he is he Czech? Is he Slovak? Because that's in that's in Ukraine now. And even back then, when it was in the Austri 
Austria and Hungarian Empire, it was a Ukrainian speaking region that had just broken away for 10 months in 20 in 1919. And I'm like, this is the perfect place to put a spy where no one could ever say where he's from. There's no record of anything because the, well, first of all, you never have six names, right? For most of us, maybe, you know, you were a greaser or Chucky or whatever your name is in high school, but you have one or two names, Max, right? right. Six is excessive. So yeah. anyways, <laughs> the whole thing's, yeah. And he's, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's supposedly a, a friend of Brezhnev, a supposedly a friend of Cherbikov, who's one of the KGB uh, leaders and also a friend of Gorbachev. Now, that's unlikely too, really, when you think about a guy from Czechoslovakia suddenly befriending the entire leadership of the Chinese Communist Party, but apparently he was able to. So to settle the score here, we should just say he's a KGB spy first and foremost. A lot of people like to think of him as all these other things, but he really is a KGB agent from birth almost. It seems like there was not much that we know about him before that that uh, would have made him anything other than a KGB uh, spy and from Russia. LB, you must have some the, thoughts about that. Oh, sorry, go ahead, Greg. Quick, can I just, yeah, real sure. quick, the British Foreign Office in the file, this is written in the 1950s, called him a thoroughly bad character, almost certainly financed by Russia. Hmm. That was pretty soon yeah. after the war, so. Not long, and then the FBI file on him is, it's fun. You should go, it's, it's, everyone it's should go to the FBI <laughs> vault and read about Robert Maxwell. There's still a lot redacted. Um, but, you know, they were following him with his Pergamon Press and all his sort of machinations as a publisher and his partners who all, you know, ended up, okay, here's a CIA guy and there's a guy over there. And then, you know, they're all, it's just all loaded with all these gross characters at all points in time or good guys trying to get in there and figure out what is this guy up to now, right? Um, I think there's a lot of question about who was helping him and how much help did he get and why he did get kind of messy with the money. Like what happened? Um, he, wanted, it, he just it, wanted it. He liked it. He wanted it. He liked it. He spent it. He behaved as if he was royal. Um, he was a very uh, odd duck. Um, so I actually think the money situation is a really interesting thing, because as I pointed yeah. out at the start of the show, what we're trying to show today is that there is a continuation from Maxwell into Epstein. And the yeah. money, as far as we could tell last week from Stephen Hoffenberg, who was on the show, went to Epstein through Towers Financial. So yeah. uh, we don't know how much there was, but there's probably a billion dollars worth of cash that went to Epstein to finance his operation, which was a continuation of, um, of Robert Maxwell's operation. And we know this also through Steve's um, telling us last week that, you know, before recently, no one really knew what happened between 1981 and 1987 with, with Epstein. He sort of fell off the map. There was no real details about where he was working. He was appeared here and there, but there was no real direction from anybody about what he was actually doing. Now, Steve came along and provided us brand new details because he revealed that Epstein was working for this guy named Sir Julian Lees, or Douglas Lees, Sir Douglas Lees. Julian is his son. And Douglas Lees is nothing short of the arms trader to the Queen herself and the crown of the UK. Um, and so it's interesting that during those eight years, what he, what he was doing was living in London, training to be Maxwell's heir apparent. And this was all part of a, of a plan that Douglas Lease came up with. And so we know now that that's where Ghislaine met Jeffrey. And they were able to begin this relationship 
which would then, uh, you know, father approved and various others approved. Finally, the Israeli military intelligence gave it their green light, and there was a big plan to take this operation from from Maxwell's years into a second generation, which I think people really struggle with this idea that there's a second generation of an operation like this. But it's not that unusual, I think, in, in these countries that have a longer term memory than the Americas. I mean, a few decades isn't that long uh, for most for most cultures. I mean, it, things have moved very quickly because of nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Principally, we changed the nature of warfare in a few short years. Um, basic military strategy and tactics had not fundamentally changed since Caesar, really. Right. Um, battlefield medicine had not had not improved from Galen to World War One. Uh, nukes in a few, few, few short years changes everything, and so now that feels like a long time, but it's really not because you're only talking about a couple of generations of uh, money to accumulate in a system that does interest, yeah. and then shift it to a bank. So no, this you know, I think we all feel a little bit weird about going back to 1984 and going, no, that was a long time ago. I had X amount of hair more, or you know. <laughs> this many fewer wrinkles or whatever, but it wasn't that long ago. We are just used it to thinking of our own lives. And it was the heyday of our now president. And so we should really get to know that decade inside and out and who, who was um, screwing over America. <laughs> I, I like, I like, that's what I, my focus is, right? Well, because that's um, the, that's the ultimate goal, right? For that's the, right. The plan is not to do nice things to America. The plan is to destroy America, or at least weaken it significantly. So. so if Maxwell started it. Or control it, just control yeah. it. To have, to, have, to have your hooks in to the big, you know, shining city on the hill. Let's mm -hmm. like, you know, that was stated by Ari Benmanashi as well uh, in your interview. And, and I think, not that we're trying to rest everything on one or two sources, but it's pretty well uh, uh, sort of meted out across many, many sources of, you know, there was a lot of nervousness always with when we have a change in administration, when we might have a change in direction, um, everybody gets a little nervous that our, our, both our friends and our enemies and want to make sure that they've got their hooks in where they need it so that they get what they want with whatever changes we install as a democracy, right? Right. Um, so if, if they can get a really corrupt money launderer in there, right, and uh, completely own that guy and leverage anything they want out of him, including just making us look uh, terrible, making us look like a shithole so that their propaganda works with their people who they're worried about, then that's a win. It can be that simple mm -hmm. when it comes to Putin, even though we know it's much more complicated. Or a friend saying, you know, well, uh-oh, maybe we did some things with Epstein and Ahub Barak and maybe they were taped and maybe that we were part of that because we were concerned about Bill Clinton. And so maybe, you know, let's not let that get out because God forbid it gets out that our friends were actually uh, behind the industrial scale rape of our daughters mm -hmm. in order that they could have, make sure they had their hooks into us in the way that they wanted to and needed to. You made you mentioned Ari Benbanashi. It's a dark story. It know? is a very dark story. It's a dark story, and this the '80s were a dark chapter. And so you mentioned Ari Benbanashi because he's the second person who confirmed what basically uh, 
Steve Hoffenberg confirmed to me. So right. it, there are not many people who are up close to these people back in the 1980s who are available to talk to us these days. But Steve Hoffenberg and Ari ben Menashe are two of those people who are pretty close. You know, Ari ben Menashe was Maxwell's handler. He handled a lot of the Iran-Contra um, buying and selling of, of weapons to Iran and whoever else they were doing the arms trades with. And I want to play you just a short clip from his interview where he describes the relationship between Maxwell and Epstein, uh, which kind of confirms everything Steve Hoffenberg said. So take a listen. Maxwell introduced him to us and he wanted, he wanted us to accept him as part of our group. I'd like you to work with him. After talking to him a bit, it didn't take too long. He just didn't think he had the... So what did he do? Can you say what he did for you? Or like what kind of work did you guys do together? No, no, he didn't do anything. Oh, so you just you met him and that was it? I met him a few times in Maxwell's office. And Maxwell sort of uh, started liking him. Maxwell felt that this guy is going for his daughter. Right. He felt, uh, he felt like he could bless him with some work and help yeah, him out and like he felt paternal. That Maxwell introduced just keeps going. That was the second part of the first part again. But you get a sense of of where, uh, you know, Maxwell shows up with Epstein already blessed by the Israeli military intelligence brass and says, hey, this is my new guy. This is my number two. He's going to be marrying my uh, my daughter. That seems to be like the, you know, two pieces of evidence now that from, from Steve Hoffenberg and Ari ben Menashe suggesting that there was, in fact, a, a deliberate handover, a deliberate plan to take the operation from Maxwell's hands into, into the hands of Steve of uh, Jeffrey Epstein. I'm glad yeah. you, you mentioned it about when they met, when uh, Jeffrey Epstein met uh, Jelaine, because the official story is that they met after her father died and she came to New York. But it sort of makes more sense that they would have met in the mid 80s when she was still of the age that would have you know, attracted his attention. I mean, it, it, indeed, yeah, she was only twenty, yeah. I think, when they met, and he was what twenty-seven or something. But there was a, an absolutely, I think that's true. And you know, Arvind Manashi also talks about uh, Maxwell liking a, a lot of younger girls as well, um, and that their T and Epstein actually bonded over that, which is kind of creepy and weird in many yeah. ways. But, but it's it's you know, this is what we're dealing with here. Well, what is the difference between uh, you know a sex offender and uh, an intelligence operative is probably 800 million dollars stolen from the CIA and a fortune uh, inherited from your girlfriend's dad who was described by MI6 as a dodgy dodgy guy who's financed by Russia I mean otherwise it's just that gross math teacher at high school mm. add a million dollars <laughs> and, and, oh, and, and, and He's still good at math, and he's charming. He's and that's why Israeli intelligence—I mean, who is yeah. more charmed more easily than Mossad? Yeah. You know, you just show up, and it's like he's telling jokes and limericks, and <laughs> good at, he's good at calculus, and which is like, all right, put him in charge of uh, compromising all he of the Congress and all. He was a spy. I like the fact that they always say <laughs> they always say he's so incompetent. Yeah, brave people, it's not hard. Just get, just get it. <laughs> He's but a spy. He's a spy. He's a spy. Jesus. Clearly, you got two spies here, he's and an so he's, he's, he's a pedophile. Yeah. 
But he's also yeah. a pedophile with a billion dollars who can sell you missiles. He's doing a lot of things, yeah. He's selling <laughs> missiles. Basically, that was his key priority. And a lot of recording equipment in every yeah. single home. So, Somehow he had the wizardry to wire that all up himself. They keep yeah. saying he's incompetent, right? They keep saying he wasn't very capable. Arbin Menashe kept saying this to me, and I was like, if he's so incapable, how did he get away with this for, I don't know, 30 right. years? I mean, it, he must be doing something right. This is the right. thing that bothers me. This bothers me to no end of mm -hmm. this. He was just a coffee boy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't take it. Uh, mm -hmm. This is my breaking point. Because... Again, this is where you press on that. That's clearly coming out of, uh, of, an, of an intelligence narrative, right? Uh, mm -hmm. of, our, of our allies, of our friend, right? It, so, okay. So you're saying to me, this is when it's like your dick is out and I get upset about that, right? Don't tell me I'm not seeing what I'm seeing, right? I see it, it's out. Don't tell me it's not out. So you're telling me that Jeffrey Epstein was able to have this mysterious wealth, right? Uh, connected to arms transactions, masterminding Ponzi schemes. All of this is on the record. None of this is, right? None mm. of this is, a, I'm not pulling this out of my ass. This isn't some conspiracy. It's all fucking there. It's in, It's there's court cases for Christ's sake. So he did all of this. He had islands, he had planes, right? He had a, a girlfriend, pimp, whatever, whose dad was the biggest spy you've ever had. Um, and she's flying helicopters and piloting submarines and all of this shit is going down. He's able to manipulate the system in a way he's got all kinds of prosecutors and law enforcement uh, in his pocket. He is he is under dealing and his attorneys are coming in and they're leveraging the Department of Justice to get him off for mass rape, mass scale, industrial scale rape. We know there's recording equipment in every single orifice of this guy's life. Um, so he's able to pull all of that off for over a decade and escape prosecution pretty much, right? Escape the law and, and seducing ex-presidents and ambassadors and all this seduction and all the celebrities and everything and fly all over the world and set up philanthropic operations at, at uh, institutions like Harvard and MIT and, and swing with the big academic minds and get into the tech center, sector and fund gaming shit with mm -hmm. the Chinese and have all that shit going on while simultaneously with Ehud Barak starting up, you know, Israeli military, Israeli, uh, private Israeli um, defense spying services with carbon, all this mm. shit. He's able to do all of that, but he's an incompetent. Okay. So then <laughs> I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to go with he's an incompetent. You win that. I'm going to give that to the to the Ari Bemanashis of the world and everybody that's that you've talked to, Zeb, that I've talked to, that keeps covering for this guy and saying, "Oh, he really just didn't know what he was doing. Oh, he really was just this coffee boy, right? Yeah, he was, you know, like young girls." I'm going to go with that. He didn't know what he was doing. So who did? Right. Who did? Who helped him? If he didn't know what he was doing, then how did he pull all that off? How did all that happen? Mm -hmm. Who did that for him? And once you push, push, push on that button, you push these guys into that corner, they're going to have to come up with an answer. That's a, you know, a very big network of people, ultimately, who knew about this and who kept their mouths shut for 30 years and, in fact, stopped the, the, the wheels of justice from turning because this guy could have been in jail several times over 
the amount of times he had almost been indicted and almost been convicted. Even the one time he sort of had that six month stay at a holiday in prison. But, you know, he, he's been able to get away with literal murder in some cases and also uh, many other crimes over three decades. And largely because, you know, is it Prince Andrew who was there knocking on the on the doors of the prosecutor saying, make him a deal? Or, or who was it um, who was making all these deals, allowing him to get off with not only get off with the crimes he committed, but allow him to continue to commit the crimes that he was doing? I think that the, the, the fact that he did all the sex trafficking for as long as he did and as horrible as it got actually is an argument that he was super competent and did all mm -hmm. the stuff himself. Because otherwise, why would, they, why would they keep him around? If he was incompetent, that makes him a liability in a sense. I know he used the, the, the girls to get compromise and stuff like that. But I, my sense is that he really, the primary purpose for him was that he enjoyed it and he got off on it. So why would you empower somebody like that and let them get away with this shit for as long as he did, unless he was almost singularly good at what he did? That's what I would argue. And I mean, absolutely, it seems impossible. I, I don't know how to work. Uh, I don't know how to work a Ponzi well, scheme. Well, tell that to the Israeli military <laughs> intelligence officers, right? Yeah, they're going to have to pick a story. They need a better story. They need to pick a story about this guy. Yeah, because because the incompetent coffee boy He's doesn't. Not Play. Doesn't fly. Doesn't fly yeah, at all. It's, it, I mean, I, yeah, that's that's insane. I mean, from a very he was a early coffee age, boy. before he's even involved with any of this stuff, he he gets the job at Dalton. You know, he, does he know anybody coming out of Cooper Union at that point? I mean, I don't think he was made in a lab to be this way. So he must have charmed Donald Barr, and Barr saw something in him. That oh, made him want to hire black. him. He, this guy is a blackmailer. He mm. had a blackmail. He knew how to blackmail to get what he wanted. Yep. End that was story. his thing. That was one of his. That's his my key book on Epstein. Yeah. That's my true. book on Epstein. Arms dealing, fucketeer who knew how to blackmail to get what he wanted. The end. Okay. But even but even <laughs> when he's a, like, how old was he when he went to work at Dalton? Twenty. Yeah, it was. They, it said it said in the in the in the documentary he skipped two years of high school and he went to college for a year. So yeah, I mean, how much how much blackmail power could he have had at that time? I'm well, only, I'm only saying I think well, he was. You're in there with the guy. you're in there with the young kids and uh, who are the children of very powerful no, no, men. I'm not saying and, once and he's Donald there. Barr, yet, the, the, I'm saying before oh, he got there. How did he, he get we, in he there? He got in the door. Yeah, so he well, had to can, have had some natural ability. Right, we can go into his family in Coney Island at another time. I'm not sure that that was ability. I think it was um, because he was somebody's kid. Look, Donald Barr was also a spy, and there's a clear history, and, you know, and so was um, uh, Bill Barr. So there's definitely a CIA thread throwing through, flowing through this entire yeah. storyline. And it seems more likely that he's probably working with the CIA while handling the Dalton School stuff than anything else to me, because otherwise, how did he get the job and why did Ace Greenberg forgive the fact that he didn't have the credentials and then hired him to Bear Stearns? You know, having, having it became known and then already. And handed him he, Edgar Bronfman? Yeah, the biggest client. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't happen. It doesn't, <laughs> happen. doesn't happen. happen that way. But let's move out of all that because that ends up, yeah. I feel like that bogs down people in, in theory instead of us really right. looking at what yeah. happened in the 80s around Robert Maxwell that it directly implicates everything that we've got going on today, right. especially the Bill Barr stuff, right. especially. So you, 
as attorney general. That's a, that's a good point. So, sorry, go ahead, Eric. Go, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking, and also, you know, you can get admired in all the details, and at some point you have to go, they're spies. But there's mm -hmm. another question we need to ask about this period. This isn't the only spy by a long shot. Who else is a long-term deep cover agent here? Who 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 has been uh, acting on some hostile foreign power's behalf since the 70s and 80s? What happened during the Reagan administration? Because when you see this, uh, the, you know, the Mister the Mister X group there uh, that includes Doug Fife and and Frank Gaffney that were in the Reagan White House who turn out as part of the Iraq War in mm -hmm. such critical. Uh, roles and then beyond that, you know, to just drive the the Republican Party or American foreign policy in a certain direction, you go, okay, you guys are all part of the same group here. Are yep. you a cell? Who are you working for? Are, you're jumping because, ahead. You're you jumping know, ahead, you're Eric. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, Sorry, you, you, we'll get there in just a minute because I just want to make a couple of points before we leave 1984 because we're still there, believe it or not. So at the same time as all of this was going on, um, the the Barry Benmanashi and uh, and Maxwell had started their little front to sell weapons to the Iranians. It was called Aura Limited. Uh, and a regular visitor there, as you'd heard from Ari Bemanashi, was Epstein. So for those people who um, question whether they had anything to do with the 1980s, whether Epstein was really involved with Maxwell in the 1980s, there's one more thing I want to point everyone to. And that is that you know because of his friend um, um, Khashoggi, Adnan Khashoggi, it appears that Jeffrey Epstein was the other person who had Promise Software because that's what one did in the 80s, apparently. And so Khashoggi was licensed the, um, the Promise Software in order to sell to the Sultan of, I can't believe it, the Sheikah Khalid uh, over there. And you see there's an actual letter from the Department of Justice. And this was an incredible coincidence, I guess, that Epstein and... Maxwell both had their hands on the most sophisticated surveillance software in the world and were at least uh, brokering it through a, a, a partner um, of Epstein in Adnan Khashoggi. That to me seems like a very significant clue that uh, Epstein and Maxwell were not only working together, that there was a continuity um, and that it stretches back all the way back to the to the early 80s. So that manager Goban offer, let me just, mm. I hadn't seen this. If you show this to me for some reason, that name didn't pop out to me before. Um, he's a big uh, arms dealer. He's Adnan Khashoggi's right hand guy. He's a huge arms dealer. So yeah. this same group, right, especially Gorban Afar and Adnan Khashoggi, but specifically Gorban Afar, is deeply, deeply, deeply in the Iran-Contra arms mm -hmm. dealing. Yeah. That's the guy that, that executed the actual sale of arms from and was the middleman that helped the transaction of us selling arms through Israel to Iran during that Iraq-Iran war. Mm -hmm. I did not know that he was in here with the promise stuff. It's he's not only yeah. in there with the promise stuff. You know that's the connection oh. to Epstein having this tool to go and use it in Ponzi schemes around the world and and what have you. Um, while Maxwell also sold it to various intelligence agencies. So it's a significant uh, piece of evidence that people tend to gloss over. But the fact that this tool is probably used to launder so much money and to track people, God knows what else was used for in the United States, is, is it was really shocking to me that this has received so little play and how people just disregard this little piece of evidence, which is you know, surely very significant. Support Narrative's independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. 
and check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe and download.